Writing about black Twitter after the presidential election of 2016 is bittersweet as a scholar of race and digital media. It's bittersweet because Donald Trump's supporters are increasingly baying for Black Lives Matter, a movement that's often considered synonymous with Twitter use, to be declared a hate group. Meanwhile, Trump himself, the 45th president-elect of the United States, is increasingly argued for as a Twitter power user. Although the source of his expertise is only slowly becoming being understood as drawing upon white Twitter practice and American racial ideology. And I wrote that so you can cite me when the book comes out. Uh, instead, pundits and academics attribute his Twitter savvy to appeals to class, unreason, or nationalist rhetorics, even while decrying his use of the social media service as inappropriate or as a distraction from the real Donald Trump. These commentaries about inappropriate cultural and technical Twitter literacies are familiar to me as they were also applied to black Twitter when I first started researching the phenomenon. When, while black Twitter is today understood as a political and cultural phenomenon, when I first began studying it in 2009, many dismissed the actions of black Twitter and its users because they weren't productive or they weren't respectable. At best, prior to the murder trial of George Zimmerman or Michael Brown's death at the hands of the police, Twitter was present, black Twitter specifically was presented as a curiosity, a momentary aberration in ordinary tech use from the mainstream perspective, or, and, a brief ephemeral instance of black online discourse employing black culture, which would soon fade to the margins of the internet like black planet or black voices. But that didn't happen. I've been writing about race and social media as for a while, since 2005, and my focus has primarily been on the ways black Americans articulate themselves in digital, online, and lately social media spaces. In the course of doing so, I've had to navigate skepticism about the very presence of black people, black bodies online, and it's that skepticism that powers my work to this day. When I decided to look at identity, I chose to examine it by beginning with an identity that people expected to see in online spaces, that is, those who could afford material access, those who had technical and written literacies, and to be frank, those whose economic presence was most desired as internet and e-commerce ventures looked for income streams to support increasing server, technical, and content demand. Right? This is a summation of digital divide research. Those users, white, male, middle class, and heterosexual, are still the most desired targets for advertisers, capitalists, content providers, and technology companies. I offer to you, though, that the above demographic identities, gendered, sexuality, and socioeconomic status, intersect with a technical identity, right, as a computer and later internet user. What has become increasingly apparent to progressive, non-POC, people of color, queer, and feminist academics and pundits, however, is that whiteness subtly and unsubtly lends the computer user its interpretive flexibility. That, a whiteness, that whiteness is somehow supplanted by technology, leaving the user non-raced and even lacking white ethnicity. These users speak for the entirety of humanity through becoming simultaneously an individual computer user or the every person who uses the internet. Moreover, participation in the, the virtual and digital maps closely onto values of transcendence from the prison of the body, an early trend in cybercultural studies. 
from these grounds, online content and practice generated by these paragons is neutral, human, and untainted by particularity. And so I usually don't do this. This is my R. Kelly quote, sorry. But let's go to the remix now. So I put this slide up here specifically, right, because I wanted to ask you to consider that white participation on the internet is considered as what people do as opposed to what a culture does. And I used as an example this relatively unknown person who happens to own a business and may have run for office at some point and the ways in which he used race and politics and technology to express his identity to an increasing number. I mean, 655 and 152 for likes and retweets is not that huge of a number, but this is just the beginning of his uh, increased participation in the Twitter sphere. For this presentation, I'd like to offer that the digital and virtual practices and affordances of black Twitter map onto the ritual formalized performance of embodied libidinal black identity discourses. And in doing so, they distribute black discursive identity across the internet, across the service, and into the wider information sphere. Libidinal discourses, and I'll tell you more about that later, drive the joys of black Twitter musings on dem thrones, hashtag, and other manifestations of black everyday life, but also power the political engagement of Black Lives Matter as well as art articulations of racial fatigue syndrome characterized by Say Her Name, a memorial to Sandra Bland and other women killed by police in the last couple of years. Right. Uh, note, for those of you who are familiar with my research, um, particularly for this piece, note that I am uh, acknowledging but not overly emphasizing the contribution of the black Twitter hashtag. And this is because while the hashtag offers participants and viewers topical and cultural coherence, and in the process makes Twitter easier to read and understand, its primarily, primary utility for black Twitter is the visibility afforded by its uptake in Twitter's trending topic feature. The hashtag and the trending topic work together to make black Twitter visible allowing outsiders to see informational cultures, but black Twitter always already existed prior to the hashtag. Right? Note that this definition also doesn't acknowledges but does not privilege the individual Twitter user or tweet, although I will use examples because how else can I do it? By acknowledging that there is a group of users, it slides past the concept of imagined audience that characterize early social media research, but it also slides past charges of essentialism. I'm not saying black Twitter is all black people, and not even saying black Twitter is all people who are black who use Twitter, but this group can be identified by the ways in which their practices map onto certain discourses. Twitter's temporal, electronic, and structural discourse mediation encourages weak tie relationships between groups through informal communication practices. Analyzing Twitter as an information source captures data about social use and information types, but elides cultural communicative practices. It's clear that black Twitter is encoded and digital, and that these are not instances of inappropriate or illiterate tech usage, considering that one of the major investors, an activist investor named Chris Saka, has said that black Twitter is the premier use case of what Twitter is. How then to understand how culture shapes technology use? To expand this a little bit, black Twitter is not the only space where blackness materializes online. Information and communication technologies use information communication technology users always already have an identity when utilizing their digital technology of choice being hailed as through their use of a profile or a login as users. Scholars studying black identity have also grappled with the hail. 
uh, most famously argued for by Franz Fanon, and I'll explain the hell right here. He contended that despite his aspirations in his black body to become a modern subject, he experienced a phenomenological return to the body by a passing white child's comment, look mama, a Negro. And with that, he experienced a subsequent return to the social, cultural, and economic prospects de de designed for him by white Western culture. He became done and undone, constituted and constrained discursively. I love the way he wrote that. Taking from Fanon and a couple of other black philosopher, philosophers of black identity, we could talk a little bit about the phenomenology of black identity, how the embodied sensual experience of being black every day has a spiritual and discursive element as well. And we do, I'm doing so because I feel that it maps well into analyzing how blackness is made manifest in digital and online spaces. So returning to the hail, Linda Alcoff responds that while Fanon's experience of the phenomenological return cannot be denied, black self-identity is what happens after the hail. I am extending her argument to contend that what black digital practitioners do after logging into their device or service materializes their embodied libidinal offline experience in online spaces. I won't be talking about black Twitter's powering of Black Lives Matter today, although if you ask me, I swear I will address it briefly. Um, although feel, and feel free to do so in the Q&A as well. Instead, I'm interested in unpacking the everyday and the banal, the small p politics of articulating oneself every day. These instances are the meat and three of black folks' use of Twitter. Does everybody know what a meat and three is? Some people know what a meat and three is. A meat and three is a staple of uh, Southern dining. It's a meal you can order where you get your choice of an entree, the meat, and three sides, right? So I'm arguing here that this is the sustenance, the meat and three. <laughs> the casual, playful, and cathartic space we call black Twitter. So I've done a lot of talking. But it's perhaps time to offer some examples of how my analysis of black Twitter, blackness on Twitter operates. My first, no giggling. <laughs> my first example is what happens when the black cultural discursive frame of the ratchet frames online content and practice, and I'm describing it as ratchet digital practice. I'm aware that some of you may not know what ratchet means. In short, ratchetry, the practice of being ratchet, is unapologetic behavior that refuses to assimilate to outgroup or in-group notions of appropriate behavior and aesthetics. In this case, ratchet behavior works to frame digital practice, digital identity, go back, black cultural objects, black discourses, and libidinal energies in a succinct network form. This tweet is an example of a ratchet digital practice, black Twitter's reaction to Rachel Dolezal, a white woman from Idaho and NAACP chair in Seattle, and her self-protest expertise in black culture. In June of last year, Black Twitter used the outing of Rachel Dolezal's performance of black womanhood to conduct an informational exercise in black identity. And I've named this and other examples ratchet digital practice because it's explicit, undecoded, calling out of the embodied and unruly sensual black aesthetics made manifest in a digital space. Just out of curiosity, are there any non-black non-brown people in here that know the answer to this question? <laughs> Anyone care to guess? It's not a quiz. You will not be graded. I will not even embarrass you. I'm just curious. <laughs> Clever enough to say it's not the one on the left. <laughs> you are wrong, my friend. Oh. The answer is both. <laughs> Again, undecoded. So for the uninformed, uh, this is what um, 
Olivia Pope's hair should look like every morning after she gets up and scandal, right? The fact that it does not look like this says something about the ways in which blackness is represented in television. When black hair encounters cotton uh, pillows and sheets, it tends to curl up and return to its natural curl pattern. The fact that Olivia is silky every morning should give you pause because it ain't like that, sorry. <laughs> this is called the kitchen because uh, for beauticians, this was part of the hair that needed to be cooked with the live relaxer that ended up straightening out hair. With me so far? So undercoated and aesthetic and sensual, right? But wait, there's more. My second example is of a different type, and I'll probably stick with this more. I will definitely stick with this more throughout. Uh, here I'm excavating respectability politics as a frame for black digital practice to offer you an example of what I've named dogmatic digital practice. I prepared this slide knowing that many more of you from immigrant or working class or rural backgrounds may be familiar with the politics of respectability. This is a darker version of it in black culture where misogynar, did I say it right, Kishana? And Kishana will be talking about this next week in her CMS presentation. Plug, 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 plug. Next week, <laughs> right, in this room. Uh, this is a darker version of it in black culture where misogynar spawned a particular venal, particularly venal and petty version of respectability politics centered around the denigration of black womanhood and the elevation of patriarchy, and they named it Hotep Twitter. We'll explain Hotep later. That, that, that would take much longer than I have. <laughs> While respectability politics can be understood as a positive endeavor, must, one must acknowledge the ways in which black folks are thrown under the bus in order to achieve respectability's gains. Like others, I consider respectability politics to be a coercive ideology, but I am reluctant to label its affect, its libidinal energy, as such because its proponents mean well. Right? Therefore, I'm arguing that the, the, the affect powering black online respectability can be understood as despair, and I'll come back to this later on, but I want to say despair over the demise of black morality and the despair over continued di discrimination at the hands of white folk because they refuse to be less uh, immoral intertwined with fears of being left behind in Western technoculture through inappropriate digital practice. All right, fun time over. So I have, I call this a meet in three because I have, the meet is this sentence I have up in bold at the very top, my claim, and the three, well, technically four, three and a, three and a possible, um, is the warrants that I'm using to make the art, to support the argument that I'm making. Right, but overall, I'm um, arguing that blackness online is an informational identity representing black online interiority, which constructs, complicates, celebrates, and complains, because I love consonants, about embodied black sensualities and experiences in a space where neither bodies, sensuality, nor blackness are supposed to be. And this leads me to my claim for black online interiority as a natural identity for digital spaces. And we'll come back to all these propositions, I swear. Yeah. All right. So this part is uh, a recap of the research that I've done to date. I'm, I'm sorry, the research I've done previously on black Twitter. And I say this just because I promise to talk about black Twitter. So here we go. Um, for those unfamiliar with, which I'm assuming is not the case anymore, or uninterested in, which I'm sure is still the case, black Twitter or Twitter in general, it's a social network premised on connecting people through subscription-based broadcast content. The communication is simultaneously semi-public and circumscribed but also can be limited to private networks as well. The social mechanism is the follower-followee. One can choose to follow or subscribe to people whose tweets they wish to receive and in turn can be followed by those who wish to receive their broadcasts. 
when the tweet is published to one's followers, it is also published in chronological order to the public timeline. So this part is unnecessary, but I feel the need to say it anyway, in part because of the ways in which people now seem to understand social media services as public spaces. Twitter is not public, despite, despite its easy portability through embeds and screenshots. One must either be a Twitter user or be using someone else's logged in account. If you try to view Twitter now, and I should have put a link in here, without being logged in, you will get a screen encouraging you to sign in. If you circumvent that by going to Twitter through Google or Bing, Bing, because I work at Microsoft, Bing is a very good search engine. You should use that. Um, <laughs> you will, if you view Twitter through a search engine result, you'll see a few tweets, but then an invitation to sign in so that you can view the rest. Right? Twitter gains its public persona through the enormous amounts of attention lavished upon it by your chosen information curators, journalists, the media, and your friend networks. Even so, public is skewed thanks to your choice of information sources, leading to what Eli Pariser calls filter bubbles, right? And they provide a minimal coherence for Twitter, and I would argue for your own political savvy if you're a Trump supporter. Um, see, I started talking shit and lost my place. Uh, <laughs> um, enabling you to make sense of the information received and only a limited pers perspective on everything you haven't seen. Right, so if you subscribe to celebrity Twitter, chances are really good, unless you're a journalist assigned to cover that, that you're gonna think all of Twitter is simply Rihanna showing beach pictures and Nicki Minaj and other black cult objects like Tayana Taylor just showing their bodies off for random reasons or another Kardashian sighting, or if you're a member of the Believers or the Little Monsters or what's Mariah Carey's? The crazy freak people, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, but also, if you just subscribe to progressive liberal Twitter, as many of us, I suspect, do, you will have been inundated with messages prior to the election of how Hillary was totally gonna win, with very little input from other sources saying that that probably was not the case, right? So Twitter is public in a sense that it brings you a public sphere, but not public in a sense that you get to understand the entirety of Twitter. And part of the reason why I thought it essential to make that point is that viewed in its raw form, the public timeline, the space where every tweet Twitter publishes is published in chronological order is a cacophony of minute bits of information. Mundane and personal, important and official, Real Madrid scores, Donald Trump's next pick, what I had for lunch, how many bowel movements the baby had this week because that's really important. But, it, but the public timeline is nearly incomprehensible because of its volume and speed. Despite this immense volume, uh, information, however, Twitter functions as a social network, which brings me back to the whole black Twitter part, because of the subscription element of the service, providing context to loosely connected groups of followers and followed who encode and decode their messages through their shared interests and culture. Uh, Twitter's current primary interface is a three-column page with a standing header, and it's simple in part because of the, designs, the designer's self-imposed limitation of 140 characters per message, which also allows it to work on short messaging services and on instant messaging. I got my coat pulled by uh, Sasha Constanza Chak today, and so I need to say that the materials necessary to use the service, an internet-connected client, screen, and input device, were drawn from an open-source software named TextMob which itself was designed to connect protest movements during the 2004 Democratic Convention. These material artifacts were designed initially to connect mobile users, not smartphones, that's a later thing, were in, and, but Twitter's designers incorporated them into updated and robust code that intended to scale to reaching an enormous number of ICT configurations. At one point, before Twitter began cracking down on how many third-party clients could access the service, and I'm thinking 2010 to 2012, there were eight operating systems that had Twitter clients. There were 300 
Twitter clients that access a service on any given day, right? And even with that number, 50% of them use the Twitter mobile interface, right? So it's an enormously heterogeneous in terms of um, device access and client access, uh, which comes to my, which comes to bear later on. Um, Twitter's truncated message format lends itself readily to mobile adoption, so the social messaging service and the like. This is significant for this presentation for a couple of reasons. Our mobile phones serve to organize our family and personal networks. I call it the genius loci because I steal from Latin liberally, the brain and your local brain, right? Uh, I'm sorry, it should be genius because that's how the Romans put them. Um, for our social milieu, our friends, family, and acquaintances are all stored searchable and accessible and through a pocket-sized computational information internet terminal. With respect to black people, they are overrepresented on the devices that can access Twitter and in Twitter demographics as well. So numbers, which I didn't put up here because I just want you to listen to the sounds of my voice. 94% of black folk own a cell phone, 2016. With respect to smartphone ownership, 68% black people have smart I'm sorry, 68% of all smartphone, 68% of Americans have smartphone ownership. 66 white, 66% white, and 64% Hispanic. So let me rephrase that. 68% of all blacks have a smartphone. 94% of all people with a smartphone are black people. Does that make sense? No, it still doesn't make sense. 94% of all, all blacks own a, a smartphone or mobile phone. Sorry. I should have really written this out better. 94% of all blacks either own a mobile phone or a smartphone. 68% of those are smartphone users. With respect to demographics, 66% white and 64% Hispanic. So blacks are overrepresented. With respect to certain smaller demographic categories, blacks 18 to 29, 85%. Black people with some college, 71%. High income blacks, 81%. And all of these people use the phone to access the web daily, multiple times. Comparatively, nearly 80% of all Twitter's monthly active users, which is a, uh, demographic, a demographic that they use to make money, right? they say these people come every month and so you should pay us so that we, you can access them. Right? Access Twitter from their phone and one in five online blacks, so 22% access Twitter on a given day. So what do these numbers mean, Andre? In a population which, which is uh, 37 million black, 39 million Hispanic, uh, 270 million white and then others, right? Blacks are overrepresented on Twitter usage, right? And in smartphone usage, right? Leading to my claim that Twitter's, Twitter's instinct to use text messaging and later mobile interfaces was a bridge, a sound bridge maybe. Mm -hmm. No, okay. Right. A bridge for black people to naturally migrate to the service. And this is unsubstantiated by anything but me talking to my friends. So take it as you will. <laughs> so I have to take a step backwards. Um, this is a question I've been asked since I started studying black people online, particularly given I started with digital divide research. And the question is, are you sure they're black? People don't seem to ask that question as much any day, these days. And I would love to have you tell me why that is. But in the beginning, <laughs> the day one, uh, given the absence or perceived validity of embodied or visual signifiers of race online, my research had to operationalize racial identity through discourse and language. 
I used Everett Hughes, a Chicago sociologist, premise of ethnic identity, which revolves around the argument, which I have cited up here as the first bullet, that recognition is essential to a discursive and dialogic construction of identity. That is, both the in-group and the out-group recognize that the in-group has particular beliefs, behaviors, practices, and aesthetics. Right? So this, as a dialogic space, speaks to both the fact that uh, cultures don't exist in isolation and that people depend on the external recognition of others in order to help determine their own identity. This is not to say, however, that one cannot perform blackness. Rachel Dolezal was able to do so for many years in front of actual black people. Uh, however, Dolezal's black identity was dissolved through the recognition of both the in-group and the out-group, outed by her parents and thrown, slammed to the ground by black Twitter. Right? Compare her to Gary Owen, a black cult object who I'm afraid you may not know, a comedian uh, who is married to a black woman, recognizes his children as black, and regularly performs to, as a comedian to sold-out African-American audiences. For Owen, the difference is, is that he's upfront about claiming that he has a presence in black environs without claiming either black cultural identity or white privilege. Right? So you can claim space in black spaces right, without having to be black. And that's important for later discussions of who all can participate in black Twitter. Returning to Alcoff, she argues that the recognition by the other is vital to the development of subjectivity, but has purchase only on the ego or past self and not on the real or core self. Online identity then draws from the recognition through algorithmic or network visibility of a performed self, but only that past self from which one is already separated. Twitter streams and archives provide a retrospective account of black identity, even as practitioners continue to evolve and expand past their written accounts. And in this way, I skate past charges of essentialism or monoculture. Uh, I don't know if you've seen many arguments where suddenly some research study from <coughs> USC attempts to claim that they are studying black Twitter, and black Twitter goes crazy and says, you don't know who black Twitter is, we don't all watch Scandal. This approach is designed to avoid that, right, by saying there is a heterogeneity to black Twitter, right, but, and so I had a question um, last time I gave, though, two times ago when I gave this presentation, this young woman said, well, how do you account for feminist black Twitter or uh, differently able black Twitter or trans black Twitter. And to her, my answer is the fact that you keep using that one word in the middle, black, means that they have a shared experience around which they cohere. That's the part that I'm recognizing. And this approach allows me to have that flexibility to move, to move away from that shared identity to see what the particularities of your difference are. Fun part. Um, across my research stream, I claim that information technologies are material objects that incorporate social practices and beliefs. They formulate and codify beliefs about the control of the natural world and configurations of social behaviors as well. Although new technologies are deployed to serve an imagined or specific need, they often reinforce existing social patterns and even create new social practices far beyond the designer's original conception. Who among you envisioned the complexity entailed by Facebook's casual use of the word friend to, uh, to uh, describe network affiliations? Right. How many of you thought before Facebook how many privacy controls you had to have on your personal life in order to manage who get to knew, got to know what? Right. For this presentation, I ask you to consider the internet and Twitter as a computational and informational technology that transmits cultural beliefs, practices, and ideologies. And accordingly, we can see that information and technology not only require functional literacies, but cultural ones as well. Black digital practice is often understood as inappropriate. It encompasses online performances of, and recounting of black joy and pain in everyday life, mediated through, but not fully explained by, 
the productivity and commodification paradigms of modernity and political economy. For example, while Twitter sometimes seems to be capable of serving rationalistic and capitalistic information technology aims and desires, broadcasting NFL games, news, news breaks on local and global disasters, or as a medium to express your despair at the election of Donald Trump, investors still seem uncertain that Twitter is a productive endeavor. Lewis Mumford has a phrase for this, he calls it techno-rationalism, and he, he says that if you're being techno-rational, you need to dismiss quasi-personal interpretations of observed phenomena, right? which describes well the effective, emotional, and deviant ways in which Twitter is understood. In other words, Twitter ain't all that rational. Right? There's a subset of Twitter users, however, whose effective emotional practices have dominated the uniform, the platform, like Twitter. Through their efforts, Twitter has been reshaped from a deviant technocultural artifact to a certain extent, to a pro productive, efficient space within which to articulate cultural and political identity. Technology is the American theology, or in Sivavaya Nathan's phasing, techno-fundamentalism. And Joel Dienerstein goes as far to argue that technology as an abstract concept functions as a white mythology, which leads me back to my question, where do black people fit in this particular formulation? Technology from uh, technoculture, as Dienerstein calls it, structures American identity constructed through a assumed superiority over societies perceived as static, primitive, passive, communist, terrorist, or fundamentalist. I'm not arguing here that other cultures do not value positivism and rationality, but since science displaced superstition and religion in Western Europe, values such as positivism, empiricism, and imperialism form part of the matrix of Western technoculture. And there are more, uh, masculinity, religion, progress, the future, and whiteness. The reason why this is important to me is that uh, information communication technologies promote control over time, space, textual literacy, and predisposes to think of the world in terms of information. Given uh, information technologies' academic, governmental, and mercantile origins, they also emphasize efficiency, surveillance, and hierarchy. Right? White participation in online identities is rarely understood as constitutive of white identity. Instead, we are encouraged to understand their online activities as stuff people do, even as cameras for surveillance or ShotSpotter, which is a gun, uh, gunshot auditory technology designed to locate when gunshots go off, are deployed in neighborhoods where gunshots do happen, as opposed to neighborhoods... I'm sorry, I messed that explanation totally up. We'll move on, shall we? What would a critical cultural vision of ICT usage look like, or is there such a thing as white Twitter? Oh, we're back here again. <laughs> so, <coughs> one of the key components of the research that I conducted was I argued that the hashtag is a crucially important part of black Twitter. So this slide is, is my signpost saying we're going to talk about what happens when you move past that. It's become, it's come, the hashtag is the, the key component of black Twitter, in part thanks to my own emphasis on it in the first peer-reviewed black Twitter article. Hush, Kishana. In that article, mm -hmm. I argued that the hashtag provided topical coherence and visibility to a wider audience while providing internal discourse cues and performances. In revising this research for inclusion in a manuscript, however, I realized that the hashtag is a much smaller piece of black Twitter practice than I originally conceived. In arguing for it as conferring topical and cultural coherence, I overlooked exactly what it was giving coherence to. Right? 
Uh, with that in mind, I'd like to introduce you to the next steps in my research on the race and the digital using ritual, drama, and catharsis as a basis for conceptualizing black identity and, as, and from there to digital practice. So I moved to Leotard, who talks about libidinal economy, which undergirds political economies, powering them through the realization of inchoate or even explicit pain or pleasures. Leotard describes it as the distribution and arrangement of desire and identification. As an example, Frank Wilderson explicitly references anti-blackness as the libidinal energy powering American culture. Information technology has its own libidinal economies, right? Rational, productive, and efficient processes and practices. Right, so I am the master of not doing email well. One of the things that people expect you to do with email is when you get one, you, re you respond to one. Right? Also, another one is inbox zero. I don't know how many of you have achieved inbox zero in here. See, I hate you people already. Uh, <laughs> right? There's something about doing email properly that demands that you answer everything in that inbox until your inbox is clear. Except Right. <laughs> so rational, productive, and efficient. Right. The primary benefit of incorporating libidinal economy into my analysis of information technology, design, use, and behavior is the illumination of how belief and culture powers technocultural practice. For example, online incivility and trolling can be understood as pleasurable white masculinist and patriarchal digital practice even, or perhaps because of, their deviance. To clarify the ontological power of libidinal economy, I, just, I like the way that sentence sounds, it just rolls off. I am employing the term pathos in place of affect. While modern definitions of pathos revolve around sympathy and empathy, for black digital practice, I'm returning to Aristotle's definition of pathos as a set of rhetorical topoi. Aristotle argued that pathos encompasses the speaker's familiarity with her audience's value and belief systems, preferred presentation styles, and techniques of argumentation, all of which can be seen when you understand how people configure their discourses to the digital medium that they use. Right? It's tempting, given pathos association with style, to infer that its emotional appeal is logical, illogical and shallow, but that's far from the case. Logic depends on an artificially narrow pathos, or common sense, a particular style of presentation, objectivism, a particular set of values and beliefs, empiricism, rationality, and positivism, and specific techniques of argumentation, scientific method, or my new favorite, big data, uh, to gain a specific type of scientistic authority and knowing of the world, which renders science as a set of emotional appeals to a specific audience. Expanding from logos to pathos allows for me to argue for black digital practice as digital labor and desire, or di online resistance and pain, or digital representation and joy. Right. So, Pathos now becomes an epistemological standpoint, right, for a libidinal economy of black technoculture. And this is important, because I say so, no. This is important because uh, Harding defines an epistemological standpoint as a logic of discovery, intended to produce knowledge that can be for marginalized people, saturated with history and social life instead of abstracted from them. Which renders this approach a sort of critical race theory, social justice approach, although I never explicitly claim it as such. From this perspective, black pathos is stunningly relevant as an epistemological standpoint for the black experience in the Americas. Centering black pathos as a standpoint of, of a libidinal economy of digital practices encourages a structural perspective on digital practice by examining community-produced knowledges without emphasizing individual affect. Backwards, take a step back. The United States was founded on the cultural logos that blackness is not an intelligible part of American society. 
As such, ethos was denied to African Americans based on the ideological and civil assignation of deviance through embodiment. To counter these discourses presented as logical, juridical, and moral, black discursive culture cultivated a warrant of pathos, emotional and body cognition to ground their identity. My use of black pathos also draws from Joan Morgan's Black Feminist Politics of Pleasure, where she asks how desire, agency, and black women's engagement with pleasure can be developed into a viable theoretical paradigm. While doing so, she argues for a black female interiority as the broad range of feelings, desires, yearning, erotic and otherwise that were once deemed necessarily private by the politics of silence and respectability. I answer Morgan's call by presenting black online interiority as a way of understanding how black discourses of identity move from barbershops, salons, and the stoop to online spaces. Right? And I selected respectability and ratchetry, the examples I had before, as frames of black interiority to illustrate how experience and thought can shape practical consciousness and digital practice in, in online spaces. So the remainder of this is just me running my mouth and check the time. That's 40 minutes. I think I can do the rest in 10 minutes. Y'all good? Okay, good. So I want to talk about, I need to clarify the difference between frames and epistemological standpoints because some of you people in here are really smart and I just want to make sure that you know that I know what I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> so frames encompass, and I'm here I'm citing from Fisher, uh, represent a widely comprehended category which encompasses a broader range of meaning than the object of framing. Right? And the if, they, if you are doing them properly, the researcher should be able to exchange the cultural frame for the topic of the text without changing the meaning of the text. Fisher also argues that there's a second level, and this is where the epistemological standpoint comes in. The frame doesn't just represent how people understand what's going on, it represents their position with respect to the world that they are engaged in. Right? So there's a double level to frame. So when I'm talking about respectability as a frame for black practice, I hope you'll understand that I'm not saying these people are explicitly saying, I'm going to be respectable today. That's not exactly what happens, but the ways in which you can take the community level discourses, the tweets that, measure, that uh, add up to uh, discourses of respectability, can be understood as using respectability as a space for digital practice. Historically, respectability politics has sought to modify embodied sensual and deviant behaviors of black folk towards standards of middle class white behavior, which renders it curiously racist in both its depictions of black female deviance and in its valorization of whiteness for political gain. Going back to libidinal economy, I argue that the libidinal energy powering respectability politics originates from denial. Denial of prevailing stereotypes of black bodies, in particular black women. Denial of the libidinal energies of black folk culture. We, we can even add jazz and hip hop to that, or graffiti, or breakdancing, right? And a curiously aware denial of the consequences of assimilating to white middle class standards. So for those of you who are aware of Brown v. Board, uh, Derek Bell wrote a really scathing critique of it, saying that Brown v. Board, while ostensibly for allowing integration of black children into schools, really only benefited the white middle class, I mean the black middle class, right? They were not as concerned with the poor students who were um, uh, trying to go to school. They wanted to make sure their kids had access to all the resources that they felt white children had in order to succeed. Going to black online respectability, I'm arguing that it's not just denial that power, that is the libidinal power, but despair. Despair over the demise of black morality, intertwined with fears of being left behind in Western technoculture through inappropriate digital practice. Du Bois, in 1940, noted that the black community is ever vigilant in policing itself, 
voicing in private spheres a bitter inner criticism of Negroes directed in and upon themselves, using a phrase I love to use called anecdata, right, where you know the people that you grew up with because you grew up with them, my bad, uh, while remaining critical of the context in which such policing is necessary. Black respectability politics is the performance, then, of black culture for two audiences, blacks who should be respectable and whites who needed to be shown that blacks could be respectable. It emphasizes the reform of individual behavior and attitudes both as a goal itself and as a strategy for reform of the entire structural system of race relations. From this position, I'm arguing for black respectability as dogmatic because it argues for bromides, the anticipation of the white gaze, and shame to legislate the behavior of black folks in the hope of creating a good moral person subject to a governmental habit of thought. Which brings me back to my man here, Young Hotel. So I don't know if you had time to read it earlier, and I'm not going to read it to you, but I want, to note, I want you to notice that there are a couple of things that are going on here that speak to a type of respectability politics. Again, this is misogynoir that's dedicated to denigrating black women's bodies. right? The reason there are two tweets on here, however, is that I could not resist the clap back, right? So mm -hmm. the fact that this young man felt that he had a platform from which he had, he gained the warrant to speak on the ways in which white women should, I'm sorry, black women should conduct themselves in order to be as acceptable to black men, immediately, I think she came at him in less than an hour, right? And I don't know if she followed him or not, right? But immediately came back at him and said, oh, so you're concerned about weight problems? Let's look at your profile picture there, bruh. Right, so to me, this is an interplay of respectability and ratchetry. Right, two two different frames, two different tweets operating in concert to to talk about an element of black culture that is usually not seen. Right, usually not heard in a space. It did not it did not trend, but women in the audience can attest that there are millions of men who do who tweet them or uh, message them on pl social platforms on a regular basis with their unsolicited opinions about how they should dress, how they should act, who, should, who they should be with and the like. It doesn't trend, but it's a steady ongoing presence that underlies much of online activity. Right? I think it's cool that hers, her reply got more retweets than his did. Uh, <laughs> like she might be the one person that, that retweeted this stuff. Right? Um, so given the above, dogma I would ask you to consider what a dogmatic digital practice looks like. It describes black folks' anxious and despairing digital discourses promoting a specific set of moral values. These practices, couched in terms of uplift, pathologize ratchet and unproductive behavior. While dogmatic digital practice powers online black respectability, its digital nature actually alienates respectability's potential for social change. I swear this is like the next to last slide. Um, I return to this quote about appropriate digital practice because dogmatic digital practice captures some of the contradictions of being black online and off. Respectability is driven by the desire to make black folk modern, despite the assimilation equivalence, assimilationist equivalence of modernity with white middle class and technical norms. And I come to this argument uh, through reading Giddens on structuration and modernity, where he says that modernity was explicitly invoked to discipline folkways, embodiments, and sensual aesthetics to gain a technical or technological identity. Right. From this perspective, Black Lives Matter online activism does not draw from respectability as much as it draws from Black Twitter's reflexivity and ratchetry, uh, in part because those are much more thoughtful and embodied, and in doing so it evades accusations of slacktivism. Unfortunately, dogmatic digital practice will never be understood as liberatory online activism. As is exhortational anti-blackness, patriarchal misogyny, reduces libidinal power over those already empowered by the medium. Because where historical respectability depended upon the ethos of black ethos, I'm sorry, the ethos of black excellence, 
dogmatic digital practice is handicapped because those who they are criticizing now have a space where e with equal opportunity to speak back to them and criticize like the young lady did before. Black Twitter, however, was and in many cases still is framed as immature and ineffective because its creative and discursive practices do not directly lead to political or economic empowerment. This technocultural framing of black digital practice is in line with long-standing ideas about material conceptions of the black body as labor or chattel, where black energies must be directed toward the enrichment of their owner or the institution. Similarly, black Twitter fails under the disapproving gaze of respectability politics, where black, Twitter, black activities are only seen as mature if they are seen as leading to the political enrichment or the advancement of the black community. The conclusion of the election season renders it imperative to consider the po political possibilities of black Twitter as a counterpublic, even though I don't think it should, we should name it as such. While black Twitter can be understood as a counterpublic, Squires cautions that we need to distinguish the discursive actions of a public sphere from the political actions of a public sphere, and in this way answers Malcolm Gladwell's charge about slacktivism, meaning informational activism in some ways is as important, if not more so, than having boots on the ground. Right. From this position, I ask for your consideration of Black Twitter as a heterogeneous Black discursive collective that happens to have political activities from time to time. Right. This position also allows for the possibility that international, so South Africa, uh, immigrant populations in uh, Europe, uh, Libyans and the like, or even non-Black Twitter users sharing cultural commonplaces or concerns in, for issues in common can be considered part of Black Twitter discourse, especially where their political interests intersect. One of the reasons why I disagree with Black Twitter as a counterpublic is, is again, thanks to Squires, where she argues that um, the differentiation between different types of Black public spheres hinges in part on defining the spaces and discourses in which those publics operate. Counterpublics, according to Squires, occupy and reclaim dominant and state-controlled public spaces while strategically using enclave spaces. Using private and public spaces in this fashion increases both interpublic communication and interaction with the state. Moreover, they employ protest rhetoric and reveal hidden transcripts of black discourse to argue against stereotype and describe group's interests. Now, hold on. From this perspective, I have now hold on actually written. Uh, from this perspective, I'm sure you're nodding and saying, yes, that is exactly black Twitter. And with respect to specific moments and instances, I would agree. However, protests and demands for state recognition of black humanity are not the only or even the primary discourses of black Twitter. Insisting that they are the only ways in which Twitter can be understood as a legible artifact of black culture returns us to respectability politics with a technocultural bent and diminishes the ingenuity and pathos displayed every moment on the service by black Twitter users. So where do I think they should stand? I, Squires has another definition she calls satellite public spheres. And I think this fits better, and I'll tell you the definition and you can agree, I'm sorry, or disagree. Uh, satellite publics occupy independent spaces open to group members. While these spaces are not completely separate from other publics or the state, their separation is not so much the result of oppression as it, as it is the lack of a need to regularly engage with others. Most importantly for this presentation, satellite publics are where members do not feel compelled to hide or change cultural particularities. She, def she ends by defining satellite public spheres as a public that seeks separation from other publics for reasons other than oppressive relations but is involved in wider public discourses from time to time. Applying this to black Twitter allows for the formulation of black Twitter as a digital and virtual space where blackness happens as part of the everyday small p politics, occasionally breaking free to confront or simply inform wider publics about their concerns. 
Twitter is the means through which certain black users separate themselves from mainstream, offline, and online publics, while black Twitter hashtag use works to involve those discussions and wider discourses. Twitter makes the satellite public sphere, dis satellite public sphere possible in ways that other social networking services or even communication technologies have not by promoting the public discursive actions of a public sphere. And these possibilities are afforded by Twitter's format, sociality, network, and material capabilities. Thank you. That was like 55 minutes. I'm glad y'all made it. Most of y'all made it through. All right, so questions, comments, answers. How do you use Black Twitter? I don't. Twitter. I don't. How do you use Twitter? I, I don't. So one of the reasons that Twitter is interesting to me, Osman was talking about this earlier today, uh, in the ways in which other media entities take up Twitter, they do through embeds, through uh, screenshots and the like. And so in many cases, because I subscribe to RSS feeds, I hope you all know about RSS feeds. Say so yes. Okay, good. Uh, I get my news about Twitter as other outlets discover and publish it. And then I go back and say, well, what all happened? Right. So my Twitter usage is second, I guess, at a remove. Um, and so I don't claim to be a member of black Twitter, except that I continually tweet really gutter hip hop from time to time. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, I, I would be one of those people that I, I'm on the outside of black Twitter, I would argue. I'm not constantly in the mix, looking to one-up somebody, looking to participate in a political discussion, keeping up with that steady stream of work because I kind of sort of have this book to write. You know what I'm saying? So, other questions? Daniel. This is really beautiful. Thank you. So, like, so what are you saying? Is like some relates for me? Um, so I, I really appreciate how um, you kept, you named white Twitter um, and kept an intention of black Twitter throughout. Um, and so you, there's this, you know, like long tradition of whiteness studies from like Du Bois to Cheryl Harris to George Lipset's about talking about how whiteness is um, you know, not just a hell of a drug, but, but something that is, you know, bears really important um, material consequences that will really let white people live. So, so what are what are white people getting out of white Twitter? Is that a real question? Yeah. Like, what is what is if you you're naming? I don't know the, the presidency. Yeah. So, what do white people get out of white Twitter? The same thing that black people do, it reinforces their identity with cultural commonplaces and events that resonate with who they think they are, right? In part, and I think I skipped this part, but talking about whiteness as universal and individual, right? They get to believe, they get to operate in the fiction that what they care about is what everybody cares about, even as they say, this is my own individual, I, make, I came up with it, individual snowflake belief, right? And so... Yeah, it's a space that validates who they are on an everyday basis. The representations they tend to see, the content they tend to get, the networks they tend to participate in all reflect themselves to themselves. Um, I think white Twitter is, is just that space. And for people who are not claiming that particular identity, for many of us, we're on the outside looking in like, you've got to be kidding me, cats all the time? 
really kept no rottweilers no no dogs none like uh and so it's just interesting from an outsider's perspective to understand both the interpretive flexibility of whiteness and the ways in which it is so powerful as to shape people's allegiances to it because it represents some sort of social capital right so in a recent census i think uh there was some controversy not really controversy but it was reported that many people who are immigrants to the country in the last 10 or so years reported themselves as white Right. Not as any other ethnicity or the like, because there's value to being white. Right. So, yeah. What value is white Twitter? It's awesome. That's what they say. <laughs> yes. Sasha. Let me see if I can like, bring this back. So first of all, this is amazing. Thank you. Brilliant. This is awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, so I'm curious about, so you're, 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 you're using squires and you're, you're questioning the ways that people are often talking about Black Twitter as a counter-public, um, you're framing it as a satellite public. I'm wondering if you could put that in dialogue with, I guess, like two additional components of what's happening with Black Twitter, <laughs> one, of, one of which would be surveillance and the other would be appropriation, and they're related, of course. But so I'm thinking about, like I, like the answer you just gave around, it's a, it's a little, it's, it's a it's little glib. Hat, right? Because part of what's also happening is sort of constant like innovation, cultural production, speech, memes, language, ideas uh, being taken from Black Twitter and then circulating out into uh, into broader, uh, it's you know constant constant appropriation um, by white people, by the mainstream, by the cultural industries, generation of revenue that doesn't go back to the creators of uh, you know concepts, cultural innovations, uh, language, um, the rapid shift, which is also often sometimes like mediated through other. Uh, you know, subcultures that have other kinds of access. So I'm thinking of like white cis men appropriating black speech at an increasingly rapid rate, partly through uh, taking it from black to it. Anyway, so all that's happening. And the other thing that's 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 happening is, or one of the other things happening is also the um, the relationship of the state to uh, online activism, in particular um, to Black Lives Matter. And so the emergence of the whole conversation around you know police forces hiring. So, uh, social media analytic firms um, to provide them with, uh, you know, regularly updated access to network analysis of the key actors within a particular movement formation like Black Lives Matter. So it's like, what is that? What are those two twin additional pieces of what's happening? Cultural appropriation and state and also corporate and counter movement surveillance um, have to, to. How does that inflect or shift your read of Black Twitter as a satellite public at all? Uh, only to a certain extent, in part for two probably equally as glib reasons. Um, one is the United States is founded on the surveillance of black bodies, and so just this is another medium in which it's possible. But I still it, I find it fascinating that that does not detract from the joy within which people participated in. Right. Um, I also think of two. I've been listening to hip hop forever and a day. One of my favorite songs in the early 2000s before 9/11 was a song by a kid named Maceo called Next Tell Chirp. And I know I've dated myself, sorry. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but there was a company called Boost Mobile that uh, used to be work with Sprint and Nextel, and their feature was they had Push to Talk, right? And there's a large number of hip, there's a large number of hip hop songs which talk about the fact that the government is watching them or surveilling them through their technological devices. Before we cared about what, what it was, so Nextel chirp is the the hook of the, the song is Don't Hit Me on the Nextel chirp. Right, because we know the police are watching. So the idea that surveillance is something that should be newly considered with Twitter is something I try to push back on, although I do agree that it does add something to the layers and levels of corporate surveillance. 
but even then, I'm aware of the history of the actuarial industry, uh, which in many cases was founded on the ways in which it surveyed black bodies to establish baselines for which it could charge people for insurance policies. Right? And so the corporations have always had an eye on tapping into black markets, whether either to distinguish where black bodies couldn't go or to distinguish how much to charge poor white people as they exploited them too. Right? Uh, so th those are glib answers. The, the other part of it too, though, is that when I started revising my Twitter research, a lot of people were writing about black Twitter's resistance. A lot more people were writing about black Twitter and other black participation in online spaces as being commodified by the man or by corporations. And I found that, I find that compelling, but I don't find it interesting. So I wanted to write about the joys and the everyday. So that's where the ratchet came from. The ratchet was the first piece of this. And I wanted to write about the people who, uh, my when I gave my job talk at Michigan, uh, Oswin might remember this, but maybe not. I talked about a hashtag, this is 2013, and the hashtag I used was ho shit. Sorry. <laughs> uh, ho shit is shit that hoes do. Okay, just just sure. I want to be sure y'all understand, right? <laughs> and why that became a trending topic on Twitter, right? It's not because they cared about. And this is prior to uh, Trayvon Martin's uh, death in 2012, right? So this was prior to that. They said it because this is something that they could talk about at night, that they would get people to participate as to talk about something that was real to them, right? And that was the the genesis for my and the ways in which I go in this direction, where I want to talk about pathos, right? The embodied, the libidinal, the sensual ways in which Black Twitter. Twitter uh, operates that then also ends up powering um, the discourses that lead to if they gun me down, say her name, uh, solidarity is for white men as well. Those things start from people becoming comfortable with engaging with Twitter and other social media services as spaces where they can fully express their uh, themselves. Right. So I think that answers the second half better than the glib part. Well, okay, but um, just to follow this a little bit further, so. If, you're if you frame it as a counterpublic, then part of what you get to do is you say, um, so, what was pre so what was previously hidden transcript is now becoming increasingly visible, right? And it's not, and I, I, like, I hear you when you're like, look, you know, the, the country was founded on surveillance of black bodies and so on, but um, that doesn't mean that everything, everything that's hidden has always already been public in some of the ways that uh, people organizing on these platforms enables, right? So maybe a, there, there's a, I would argue that there is a substantive shift in the surveillance capacity uh, of both the corporations and the state when people move uh, the types of conversations that happened uh, in hidden spaces in, into a not public but searchable and visible and capturable space like that. So yes. if, it's, if it's satellite, then you don't necessarily... I don't know. That, that's what I'm, I'm trying to get at, like the, that shift that you're making and what implications that has for the ways we think about, you know, the types of practices we want people to be engaging in on these spaces. And I, I don't know. So going back to Squires, uh, that separation between uh, what the discourse of a public sphere does versus political action, I don't think satellite public spheres are necessarily as concerned with being countered, right. being counterpublics as the other two. She mentions enclaves and. Uh, kind of spheres, they are, they exist, they live. And sometimes it bubbles up into where they're concerned with wider issues, such as why are, why are my children constantly getting shot by police? But then they go right back to, did you see what so Cookie did on Empire, right? And those two coexist. And that my, my, concern, my interest was why the, the, how you get from Cookie to uh, Trayvon or Michael Brown, right? And yes, yeah, so I, I, and I don't. Nobody else is really doing that at this point. So I thought it was an interesting point at which I could begin. Don't know if that answers your question.
Yes, Mario. Yes. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you about the, the sort of the argumentative journey that you had to to go for respectability as an epistemic frame, hmm. because it would seem that even though it's been in the history of epistemology and it's always been the unspoken, right? Hmm. Because everybody keeps making these appeals to rationality as being the epistemological frame, and respectability is just like a side effect. I mean, it's, it, it can be dancing in front of them, but nobody says that, you know, respectability is the frame. And so I wanted to ask you, like, what, what was your journey like in coming to that, to that frame? So, again, starting with the ratchet, um, the ratchet was conceived as the ways in which black women's bodies were understood. And from there, it's a natural move to go to black feminist epistemology and intersectionality and standpoint epistemology. And from that space, you start looking at the histories of uh, women's societies, both white and black, in the early 1900s, right, which were seeking to train the legions of black folk who were coming up from the south to these urban areas in ways that would, they figured, make them fit into polite society. Right? And so I became kind of consumed with this idea that respectability is as much about control of the body and making it modern right, as it is with um, the, the way you said it earlier, which I can't uh, rephrase as, as smoothly. Right? Um, so for me, respectability kind of turns on this coercive epistemic frame, right? um, even though it may be seen as a polite, uh, as a way to assimilate. I don't necessarily think assimilation happens without some sort of discursive, if not physical violence, right? Um, and the Hotep was a really good example, well, as a powerful example, not a good one, um, of respectability politics online because there's an entire swath of men who spend millions of man hours doing YouTube videos, Instagram videos, pictures and the like, specifically trying to coerce black women, because most of them are nice guys, uh, trying to coerce black women to pay attention to them by stop doing these practices of uh, what they call fakeness, uh, so fake hair, fake boobs, fake butts, right, or materialism and the like, so that they can be then apprehended by these nice guys, right, and so... It just it fit right it, it, as a as a as a journey. It seemed to fit with the idea that are they doing this because why does this happen in digital spaces right? Where did it happen before? Well, you can look at the women's journals right. You can look at Ebony and Jet. Uh, you can look at the Cosby Show for evidence of televisual and uh, print respectability discourses right. But when it comes to online, and this is part of the book right. Respectability discourse is modified a little bit because people, the people who were online first, the black people who were online first, were much more concerned with people doing technology appropriately, right? Um, and it's only as a wider a wider swath of the public began getting online, the people who could access, you know, Black Planet from work or access MySpace from their phone. Those people weren't as concerned with the fact that they were bridging the digital divide to do something that black people hadn't done any before. They wanted to set up their website so that they connect with so-and-so down the street, right? Uh, in many ways, sliding in DMs or whatever, however you want to put it, right? And so trying to document that shift is the other way in which I came to this particular set of arguments, right? What does digital respectability look like when it goes from elites being online to everybody being online, right? Dana Boyd has, has intimated some of this when she talked about the shift from MySpace to um, Facebook, but I don't think she went far enough, right? Because the even though she mentions that MySpace was primarily populated by younger folk who weren't necessarily going to college, living in urban spaces, and Facebook was for college-bound students living in the suburbs, I think there's more to it than that, right? Uh, in part because I often equate MySpace with Black Planet, which was one of the first spaces where uh, users could uh, configure their 
uh, profile pages with any number of what we now consider garbage, glittering cursors, auto-playing music, scrolling pictures, right? And that early was the ratchetness. early ratchetness. <laughs> Geo, but not GeoCities, right? Very different from GeoCities, right? So I, I have to be careful about how I deploy ratchetness, right? Uh, as opposed to simply bad web design, <laughs> right? And so, yeah, it, it's a it's an interweaving of different things, which is why I get to. Oh, which is why I get to claim interdisciplinarity. Um, but I think it works well together in tracing this path. Oh, that's even worse. Yeah. Let's turn the light on. Ooh. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> Wake up, damn it. Tarleton. This is great. It's giving me so much to think about. So I, I, this, I'm just going to tackle one piece. Um, I was really intrigued by the point you made really early on where you wanted to say that Twitter was not public in the sense that you have to be a subscribed user to get to it. And I, I was struggling with that a little bit. I think this gets at maybe part of what Sasha was asking about. So it's funny to me because I think about like, okay, so what, what, what's a public if not places that actually do have barriers to entry, right? So if, unless we're imagining kind of some Habermasian perfect public, there are barriers to entry to be in the newspaper, there's barriers to entry to have a discussion in a co coffee shop. So, so why does that, so that's one way of saying that that's not public, but I wonder about it. And it seems like if respectability is at issue for black Twitter, part of that has to do with the recognition that you're being seen by others. Maybe respectability is to your own community. Respectability can also be like, I want to present blackness in the right way, which sort of presumes someone is seeing that. Mm -hmm. so, so that to me is like, so I'm, I'm struggling with like the, the, the use of public because one public could be like, I'm aware of an audience that is outside of my in-group. Mm -hmm. that's, that's being public. Another public is like, this isn't the home, so therefore it's public. It could be, you know, so I just wanted, but that, it struck me as curious to say that because Twitter is a sign-up mechanism, that that struck you as being other than public in a specific way. So I just want to kind of like get, get you open that question. So it's an inc um, incompletely uh, articulated thought. But where I was going with that was that uh, many people consider Twitter and Facebook as going to be public spaces, right? Constrained by the barriers of entry, such as the profile login, uh, the type of device that you use, and the like. Um, but they, those those pieces never really get considered because one of the cautions, going back to respectability, is that women should never post selfies of themselves, right, in public spaces like Instagram or Twitter because they're just setting themselves up for people to comment on them and shame. And I'm like, but those spaces aren't public, right? Those people are posting those. Okay, some people are doing what's called the thirst trap, right? Where they're trying to get more followers. But many others are posting them either for their own self-enjoyment self or for the delectation and enjoyment of people that, that follow them, right? To me, that says something about why we argue for uh, social media spaces as being public spaces when in effect they're only semi-public. Right, they're only they are limited both by the technological hail and their users' intentions to be spaces where identity can be consumed in private. So that goes kind of back to Sasha's question: What do you do when surveillance enters into those spaces? Right, um, and I don't really have a great answer for that, except for the fact that for those who want to see, they will expend lots of effort to see. Um, if it's whether it's you sign up for the network and you follow certain people who you want to be part of sort of become their public, right? Or in my case, where you follow RSS feeds of mainstream publications, 
cultural interest websites, um, special interest websites that do sports or blackness or music or the like, you're also entering into an expanded public that takes advantage of the semi-public nature of Twitter and expands that audience even further. Right. So the idea of the barrier, the one you articulated earlier, is interesting to me because it seems those barriers are porous yet still available. Right. Um, people tend try to avoid the usage of them. People try to avoid articulating them in order to, to justify why they have access to them. But I think it's important to under argue for that uh, barrier as a space for topical and cultural coherence. Does that make sense? One, two, three, four. Yes. Um, the relevance for this particular article, and again, this is part of an incomplete thought, is that if you talk about Twitter as a public sphere, whose public comes to mind, right? Um, and once you're inside Twitter, discerning which public spheres are which actually becomes harder rather than easier because you don't have the same filter mechanisms of political websites, your friends, and the like to tell you where to go to find these particular posts. Right? And so the hashtag comes back into play there. The hashtag gives you an idea of where to surf. But the other part is referring to your own networks and doing convenient sampling of other people's networks to find out where those publics end. So one of the interesting things when Black Twitter was talked about in Farhad Manju's article in 2010 is how many people said they weren't part of Black Twitter, even though they were black. Right? And it kind of actually sort of, it's funny to me because it maps on to how many people, uh, linguists have done the study, how many black people claim to speak Ebonics. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> and it turns out that many more people, because of their home languages or the home environments they grew up in, know what Ebonics is, including the grammatical and uh, semantic structures that uh, allow you to speak Ebonics correctly, right? But don't claim it because there's a social mm. sanction against it, right? So what does it mean for a person to be black and disavow participation in black Twitter, right, but still be conversant with the ways that black Twitter does? That, to me, is a satellite public, Sasha. Right? Not necessarily a counterpublic, because I'm not engaged in black Twitter in ways that speak to my political engagement, but I am engaged in, in ways to speak to my cultural and social identity. It seems to speak to like how much you then have to perform. So now it's not the boundary of getting into Twitter public, but it's like navigating within it, yeah. that because of that kind of promiscuity, right? instead of being like, there's a magazine, it's called Ebony, it kind of signals itself, you don't ever open it, you're not sort of part of it, when you open it, you sort of um, using that ability or like Facebook saying like we're going to set up a group and that group is going to be called Black Facebook and you're going to subscribe to it. Without those you have to then perform its specialness and negotiate that the, the movement between them in different ways because you can't rely on the structural part to kind of say this is a de facto line between what counts as this group and activity and everything else. I would say another good answer to your question is looking at how conservative radio hosts uh, have used Twitter and YouTube to create their publics, right, through the extended use of uh, pathos and catharsis and xenophobia and economic arguments. And they have created their publics in ways that are extremely visible because those audiences are heavily participated, are participated in heavily without the use of hashtags, right? And watching those audiences and publics as, composed, as compared to Black Twitter, Black Twitter comes off as a much more incoherent kind of happening space as opposed to an uh, organized political space where we're going to do what we say we're going to do and make things better. Mary Kishana, the young lady in the pink. You go first, because I know them. Yeah, so I guess this is um, a little tangential to um, what you were talking about, but I was wondering if um, you had any thoughts about um, Vine, which was you know also owned by Twitter. Um, 
and was recently discontinued. And then, like, a lot of kind of, like, after that was discontinued, I mean, actually, it's funny, I get all of this from Tumblr and not from Twitter, but in the discussion about that, like, a lot of um, it was sort of talking about the ways in which Vine was underappreciated as a medium that was, you know, used in black culture, like, especially for that sort of kind of, like, mundane or joyful side of black culture that you're talking about on black Twitter. Um, so I was wondering, like, if you had any thoughts about Vine or if you think that your research extends to that. I love the idea of Vine. I'm praying that somebody archives it in the same way that Twitter has been archived. Uh, one of the arguments I make for Twitter is that Twitter offers a ritual format for catharsis, and I think Vine does the same thing, but in a televisual manner, televisual social network manner. And it, it did provide entry for a lot of black creators. I think in part because of the arguments I made for mobile, this it was a mobile-only thing that was already tied to your Twitter account, so why not build something um, that works in this particular network? Um, that being said, I, I pray that it can be resuscitated. Um, but uh, one of the comments I made earlier in the presentation is that many properties that were either black dominated or black owned tend to fade to the margins of uh, the commercial internet because nobody can figure out how to monetize them properly. Right, and I think Vine is just the latest example of that. Uh, I mean, I could just go down Africana.com, uh, BlackVoices.com. There's just a whole list of things which have faded because they just couldn't manage to keep up the type of income needed to serve their audience. And Vine is just another one of those casualties. I should ask you though, how do you compare Vine to um, Snapchat slash Facebook videos? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I don't have a lot of familiarity with uh, Facebook videos. Um, but I guess, like, I think with Snapchat and with Vine, there's like that kind of interesting aspect that they're both sort of like Twitter in this very short form that like works better for you know, like sending messages than just like kind of like putting up a long kind of, what's that? I've been not having good words for this. Um, it's fine. One, yeah. of the, one of the questions I ask my students, um, because they are actually pretty dismissive of Twitter like ah, it's 140 characters what can you say that's important and like people say important stuff in 140 characters all the time like and so I try to get them to compose homework assignments in 140 character tweets they hate it <laughs> right because it's a writing assignment I teach a writing intensive class they hate it but I'm like this is a valid form of written expression and it obviously takes some expertise Right and understanding of style in order to communicate effectively in it, right? And so trying to dismiss it because A, certain people use it, or B, it's such a limited form of communication, mm -hmm. seems foolish to me. Um, One thing that is sort of interesting to me about um, the, like, Vine is that, you know, because it is televisual, like, it kind of, like, puts the bodies back in the space a little bit more than Twitter, which I guess, like, can have photographs, but can be just kind of purely textual. Um, I don't really know where to go with that, but that seems like, I guess, an interesting thing to look into. It is interesting to consider the way that six seconds generated. And so I'm a huge fan, well not a huge fan, I'm a fan of C. Edwin Baker. And one of the things he talks about, I think this is 2002 he was writing, he's saying the internet has, has accelerated the ways in which broadcast television and film uh, only really want to push content that adheres to certain shared social values, cultural values, so love, war, comedy, drama, right? And anything outside of that, like 
extended reflexivity, long form exegesis of Shakespearean plays, that stuff is going to go by the wayside because people are now more attuned to, and MTV is to blame for this as well, attuned to the idea of getting quick shots of emotion and connecting with that, right? And I think Twitter, is, Twitter and Vine are really good examples of how the primacy of pathos, which I'm arguing here, or affect, right, can really power a movement and online service in ways that uh, a lot of people will participate in. Okay, now Kishana and, and Asha. And you let Mary go first because I asked the question already. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> Put you on the spot. <laughs> so I'm wondering if some of, you said haphazard when you were talking about the kind of looseness um, that might define the different practices here and the movie and costume practices. And I'm wondering, oh, thank you for your time. <laughs> I'm wondering. Um, I'm trying to think through the ways I've been theorizing boundary publics because I'm I'm curious if this is a place where there's a tentativeness and awareness of this shared space. So the calling out. Now I don't have to call you out, but I know you're there, right? And you know I'm here. And particularly with the, the example you had of of um, uh, calling out the hotel uh, or hotel. You know, that's a place where I see an awareness of we coexist and we're sharing the space, and right now I'm going to take it from you. And I know you can take it at any point. So I'm just trying to think through if there's um, a tentativeness here and ephemerality of permeability that is part of what you're describing as the, the constitution of, of the publicness here that, that's, that's core. And then maybe related is like I wanted to hear how class, how you're thinking about class and calling out um, this into uh, claims of ownership of who gets to speak. Um, so to the first part, I hadn't thought about ephemerality and temporality, in part because I was concerned. Well, Squires brings this up as well as. Uh, um, Farrah Jasmine Griffin. She talks about respectability as the desire to gain the warrant to speak, right? And I found that to be pretty compelling to me because I, my, that's part of my argument why respectability politics fails online is that the people you want to speak down to can speak right back up to you, right? And that's not, and the ephemerality comes into it because of Twitter, right? Where if you don't respond quickly, nobody's going to pay attention to it. So it's, it it draws upon the idea that you need to be snappy with your responses. But then once that moment happens, then it's still preserved in amber for the rest of the world to see. Right? So this guy will be forever shamed. Right? <laughs> right? And so I don't necessarily think of it in terms of ephemerality, although I account for it in the ways in which call and response work for, for Twitter practices, and I probably should. Um, the second part for class, uh, a while ago, I used to argue that you had to be a particular, had to occupy a particular class status to afford both the subscription service, the device, and the time to participate in these publics, uh, I'm sorry, these services, um, and that barrier of entry has dramatically decreased, right? And so it allows for teenagers, 18, I'm sorry, 12 through 13 through, because they lie about COPA all the time, right? 13 through 29 to have the time to spend while they're sitting in class or talking to their parents to participate rapid fire in these conversations, right? And so, is it? Is it economic class, or is there we can now we talk about an informational class, okay. right? Um, and I think the informational part is much more interesting to me, um, in part because going back to Trump, it was spec. It's been continued to be speculated that he appealed to the disaffected, 
the ones who had lost their jobs in the Midwest and had no money. I'm like, you know how many rich farmers there are in the Midwest? Like, <laughs> and so, yes, there are disaffected people in the Midwest, but they still have the time to participate in cell phone and social media networks, right? Maybe more time now because they don't have as much. They, they, even though they're working seven jobs, they still take breaks and, and, and do their 140 characters of their Facebook updates, right? And so that idea of informational class to me seems compelling because what does it mean to have time to participate in these networks? Unproductive time, as far as your employer is concerned, means playing solitaire, perhaps. Uh, or, but productive in terms of your own identity to participate in these networks. You ready now? Yes, if there's time. So I was fascinated. Thank you so much for bringing up the next culture thing. Mm -hmm. um, I'm always floored by the fact that a lot of people don't realize that black and brown folks have always participated like in technology, right? Mm -hmm. Do you have like any sense of like how similar or dissimilar the black practices with technology are like the same? So like, would you would you like trace like our the black Twitter use is just similar to like you know what was done previously in like the different you know spaces that that you named, or is it different different altogether because of the the nature of the space and then you know what Twitter affords? Um, and also something else I wanted to make sure to say was that you know black folks are always touted as like children for the digital divide. You know, they're the poster children for it. And that's just, you know, not, not the case at all. So do you have like other historical examples of black use of technology, internet technologies, you know, that you can you know, provide um, To a certain extent. So uh, one of the earliest articles published on black people using uh, information technologies is Byron Burkhalter's 1997 article on uh, SCAA, Society, Culture, African American, which was a huge Usenet group, so huge that they had a schism and broke in two because some people weren't appreciating how they were doing blackness online, which is fascinating to me, right? Um, there's stuff before that, if you, if, by digging through the, some of the websites, which I need to re-update, re but also looking at the Afrofuturist archives, a lot of folk like Art McGee and the like are on those archives talking about where they used to do their, so many of them were one of, at their various academic institutions, using the Unix computers that were networked, right? From there, I would argue uh, the visibility of black participation disappeared, uh, in part because of AOL and CompuServe, right? Uh, at the same time that AOL and CompuServe were taking off, numbers of minority families buying computers increased ridiculously, right? Nobody could really figure out why these folk were buying computers, but it turns out that they had aspirational aims. They wanted their children to be part of the information revolution. I think Sonia Livingstone talks about that with respect to India, right? I mean, not India, with respect to England. Um, and so these kids whose parents bought the computers and had no idea of how to use them ended up becoming in intimately familiar with AOL chat uh, and the like. And I would argue that was a gateway drug for the introduction of SMS in the early 2000s, right? Um, and that as, and that those things tend to feed back on one another. So when you start seeing interfaces designed for smaller and smaller screens, I think those those skills that those then fourteen year olds, now twenty two year olds had translated to taking on more and more services tailored for the increasingly personalized uh, aspect of computerization on their hip. Right? That's not a formal history. So. <laughs> the but one thing most people don't know that. Well, this is true. The one thing I would add, uh, I think. Um, Belatedly, Black Planet became realized as a social network, and that's interesting. My dissertation, uh, which was published in 07, looked at the ways in which black people uh, refuted charges of refugee versus evacuee um, 
uh, following Hurricane Katrina, and I found a lot of blogs where black people had created blogs specifically to respond to the ways in which they felt they were being disrespected by the media and the like. But in between those two moments, right, where the creation of Blogger and Pyra Labs and Six Apart and the like, and nobody really has space or the documentation to talk about why black people started going on anyway. There's a large number of, there's a fair number of uh, research talking about how 9-11 uh, spurred people to come online to articulate national identities, but not so much as to why black folk started doing that. So I have an awareness, but actual sources still digging. Okay. So my question has to do with my question has to do with libidinal economy. <laughs> and I was waiting. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, back to Mary's point about ephemerality, but I'm more concerned with ephemerality of the public itself and the permeability of the bound of the board of the object and what constitutes the object. So when you frame the um, white Twitter and black Twitter um, both through their libidinal urges. There's an unintelligibility between the two. Anti-blackness can't read black pathos and vice versa. So what happens in the moment of contact? Because if it's a libidinal economy that's the driving force of the two, then what happens at the moment of contact? Because Alcoff's argument is reliance on the fact that I take for granted that there's an oppression core binary, right? or that there's a core that's pushing this libidinal urge somehow for me to produce content online constantly. But that becomes very, very messy and almost makes it to the point where I create a thousand tiny satellites or I can create a thousand subaltern publics because I continually keep creating libidinal tensions around certain you know, events that happen, or cultural phenomenon, or even a single hashtag can form a public. So what happens at moments of contact between white Twitter and black Twitter? So in an American cultural ideal, ideological context, anti-blackness is perfectly coherent. There is no unintelligibility to both black folk and white folk, uh, which is one of the reasons why Du Bois, du Bois wrote about double consciousness. Right, it's that eternal struggle to try to navigate between a world where you can be human and a world which insists on denying you that humanity at every point. So it's a singular libidinal urge between the two. Um, <laughs> so fortunately, I'm prepared for this conversation because I've been reading Fred Moten. Please don't read Fred Moten; <laughs> it's just hard to read. Right, but what Fred Moten does is he offers uh, Afro optimism. Right, which draws on Afro pessimism, but he says, and he says they actually share some same things. They're very convinced that the ways in which the Western world operates is to to continually position black bodies in a state of social death. But, and I tweeted this after the election, black lives actually says lives. Black lives are irreducibly social, so it's not social death that we have to worry about. It's political death. Right from that particular position. The incommensurability you're talking about kind of gets um, um, reduced because Moten says it's not so much worrying about who understands anti-blackness as it is celebration of the possibility that black thought can exist at all. Okay. Okay. Can I have a follow-up question? Go. Okay. So then, then what needs to happen is that that libidinal economy in white Twitter needs to enroll another institution. It needs to enroll capital. It needs in order to act upon black Twitter the way that it is. 
right? It needs to enroll something external to just this joy of being white, right? It, and it and it yeah. absolutely does, right? But it didn't and need so, to enroll anything else. It just relies on inertia. I, I don't understand how. I don't understand how you can have it just be libidinal and you can't index it unless that libidinality, or is that even a word? I don't even know. If that, in, in, you know, it enrolls another, you know, another institution so that you can say, here the political violence is happening. So if you think of libidinal as the distribution of jouissance or pathos, right? Um, Whiteness is remarkably productive and powerful because it, in, it involves a number of different ways in which to satisfy the condition of being white. The baseline of that is not being black or anti-blackness, right? And so in an American cultural milieu which relies upon not being black in order to exist, all you have to do is wait. Right. Because people will continually remember or revert to that form where they don't want to be black. Right? It's the basis of the one-drop rule. Uh, Andrew Sullivan said that uh, one of the things that struck him when he came to America from England is that white Americans don't realize how black they are. Right? <laughs> right? And so the reason why I say inertia is a, a compelling movement is that if you wait long enough, the moments where you have the Obama-sance or black reconstruction or uh, abolition movements uh, in the early 1800s before Jackson lost his mind and, and genocided all the the native tribes is that the founding ethos of this country is that whiteness is dominant overall, right? And we will do everything in our power to make sure that we maintain that particular level, right? So just wait. Um, I don't know how to put it any better than that. I, could be, I mean, I could be wrong. You know, I love to argue, but it makes sense to me. Like, uh, and so uh, I mean, and that's I call it the Obama signs half jokingly, but. For eight years, we've had a moment where the representation of a brown first family has resulted in a sprinkling of representations of other across any number of media industries and even political spaces. And so, and but at the same time, as that Obama signs flowered, the resistance to it built more and more from an elected member of Congress screaming out, you lied during the State of the Union address, right? To poster circulating, like we were back in the 1800s, of the uh, uh, first family as monkeys and animals. Like it was like, really, we're back in uh, Reconstruction again? And so that is the natural, I w even though it's depressing to argue, right? It, that I think is the natural state of American society. You just have to wait, it will return to who it is. The moments where we became liberal, the civil rights era, and the like are where we've struggled to meet the goals that were set forth where de jure and de facto should actually not be in operation, but everything else is you know, business as usual. Sorry, not depressing. <laughs> That's not a good note to end this talk on. Y'all have to come up with another question. <laughs> Aswin? Can I? Yes. Um, so this last point you made about the last eight years huh? leading to a sprinkling of representations across the field, um, which makes me wonder, this is far afield, it's maybe an unfair question, but would you care to speculate if performances of blackness on Twitter, when seen in parallel with the ex kind of decent expansion of the representational field of blackness on te in televisual spaces, is black Twitter setting some sort of cultural benchmark for performances of blackness outside the American context? Outside the American context? 
I'm asking in part because this question about libidinality in the American context is <coughs> so closely tied to a capitalist economy that when you think about Yeri Rivera's work in, let's say, in the Cuban context and how blackness gets parsed out there in, in very different kinds of political regimes, I'm just wondering if we're living through yet another moment where are you noticing performances of blackness, let's say, from the UK or from the Caribbean, that again, there's a way in which American blackness has always had an aspirational charge for blackness elsewhere, um, even for other kinds of diasporas within the US, not just elsewhere. So is black Twitter setting some sort of gold standard here for certain kinds of performances of blackness, transnationally? So I can't completely answer the transnational <coughs> Speculate, part, yeah. but I can say speak towards not necessarily black Twitter, but actually this is the reason why the book expanded past black Twitter, black yeah. digital practice, yeah. right? And the ways in which both 9-11 and the expansion of, of services, tools, and platforms that allow more people to publish to the web ever, right? Coupled with expanding numbers of computational devices that are internet connected in the hands of people who are different, I think that is what contributed to the spread of brown culture, but different cultures that weren't just white, and not just in American spaces, but elsewhere, which, which I, I think hip-hop may have had something to do with That's that. That's what I was saying. Right? What's the genealogy? Right. Yeah. Uh, but I think the hip-hop does not get as far as technical, techno-cultural stuff, because there are layers of civilization, civilized civilization and um, productivity and efficiency that we can't associate with hip-hop that we can't associate with the written word as reproduced by electronic means and so yeah that access that wider access I think does change the ways in which we view the world um, because of the participation of others who are no longer at the forefront that warrant to speak right becomes really evident when you see the changing demographics of who comes online except for well no, I'm not going to go there go no I was going to say except for white women that's because I'm still bitter about the election. <laughs> that note. On that note, on that depressing note. <laughs> we have time for one more question. Can I plug my work a little bit right quick? Can you, so, let, uh, can you let Usha ask her question? Yes, yes, Go yes. Yeah. Well, sort of to follow up on what Ashwin was talking about, um, I'm also wondering if you know the performance and uh, the um, expansion of the idea of what is of respectability um, when you have younger and younger audiences performing online, like with Musical.ly or with Snapchat, even though those are not similar publics, but they are performing to, an, to a certain kind of public. Mm -hmm. So when they grow up, uh, do you think notions of what is acceptable, respectable digital practice, I mean, what, what do you think happens there? I think we actually have a incomplete data set on that, going from the introduction of Facebook in 2004 to Ivy League universities to its current state now where it's a global phenomenon, and watching the ways in which Facebook is perceived as a, an information instrument for certain populations and not others. So the young folk reportedly are abandoning Facebook in droves because they do not like the ways in which it allows for their parents, friends, and family to surveil their activities. On the other hand, my cohort, many of whom wouldn't have picked up a smartphone in 2007 if I had told them to, now share the entirety of, and I'm speaking like 45, 50 year olds. How did Dan say it? Um, 18 to 72 year olds. 
Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> so my cohort of near 50-year-olds, all of us who graduated in the mid-80s from high school, I've taken to Facebook like it's the most wonderful thing in the world. Not quite as bad as our parents did, so not as many spam emails and exploit flaming kittens and cursors, but in ways that speak to how we understand ourselves electronically, right? And so watching the maturity of this maturity, watching the the aging of this platform says to me something about the ways in which we can expect those children who are currently Snapchatting, uh, Instagramming, yik-yakking, and, and, and how they may change as they begin to own houses and pay off student loans. And <laughs> I think the, the material and historical circumstance around them will change the ways in which they participate a lot. But at the same time, we'll still get new stuff. I'm sure some virtual reality piece in your ear will allow you to participate in ways that your parents still can't keep up with. I don't know if that answers your question. Okay, now plug. Yeah. And so we can chat afterwards. Oh, well, I want to say I am following a small cohort of gamers in Xbox Live. Um, so they, they, they all identify racially as black. You know, there, there are a few from the United States, Puerto Rico, Nigeria, and, and the UK. So it's interesting how they have really, I guess, formulated this collective black identity, you know, within that space, you know, it, it began very divergent, very different, but then I remember there was one, one, um, one quote by, by a user that is just so profound, they said, well, you know, the ghetto looks the same everywhere, you know, how they actually talked about, like, their lived experiences and what the reality of being black in these different spaces was, they said, it's, it's, it's the same, you know, so I'm not done with it, I'm still working on it, so um, whenever I have more stuff, I will share. Would- yeah. Did the ways in which non-black gamers treat them also help to solidify them as a collective? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And so that's the part I like to talk. I I like to talk about with Black Twitter, but that visibility has something to do with how we recognize Black Twitter. But at the same time, I'd like those gamers were playing before they got called out and recognized. And so, how do we understand their practices before that moment with the other recognized? And next week, you're going to be talking about. Not that. Selling, come on, let's hear it. Masaji Noir, so exploring, I guess, like, you know, black feminist digital practices, you know, and how that looks across platforms in different spaces. Awesome. Thank you guys for coming. This has been a